Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is the June the 26th, 2023, a Monday. Earlier today, we had an interesting conversation um, with Paula DiPerna. She's an economist and an environmentalist. She has a new book out, Pricing the Priceless, the Financial Transformation to Value the Planet, Solve the, cri uh, the Climate Crisis, and Protect Our Most Precious Assets. It's a kind of manifesto to figure out how to quite literally quantify the unquantifiable in market terms. She suggests the book got acclaimed by the Financial Times. It was one of Martin Wolf's uh, best summer books for 2023. And mm -hmm. what uh, Paula suggests is that new corporations are thinking about profit and <laughs> loss in a very different kind of way. She gave the example of the company Puma, uh, um, uh, a leisure wear company, Bear, uh, about how uh, corporations should quantify profit. It's an interesting way of thinking about the 21st century corporation, but today we're focusing not on the 21st century corporation, but the 20th century one with my guest, um, Richard uh, Langwa, who uh, teaches economics at the University of Connecticut in stores, and that's where he's talking to us from. He has a new book out, The Corporation and the 20th Century, The History of American business enterprise. Richard, as I said, is joining us from Stores, Connecticut. Richard, what do you think the, the managerial elite of the 20th century would think of arguments about pricing <laughs> the priceless and suggesting that profit isn't everything? Um, I guess that's an interesting question when that's not a question that I really pose in the uh, in the book, but uh, it was the case that in the early 20th century, uh, during the progressive movement, this is something I talk a lot about, the sort of progressive vision of the corporation, there were uh, people in, in business uh, and throughout the 20th century who've, who've um, thought in kind of corporatist terms and thought that the corporation should be uh, should be run in, in uh, more for the man for the employees as well as for the managers. I don't think they thought very much about the environment in those days. But um, you know, from George Perkins, uh, who was a, a Morgan partner, to uh, you know, to Swope at, at General Electric and people like that, they they wrote a lot of the Filene of Filene's department stores. They wrote a lot about this and they thought about. Uh, the social consequences of uh, of business. That's not uh, that's not so much the focus of what I am writing about, but that was that's always been a concern. So you're writing about uh, what's called the managerial century, um, and of course, the managerial century was defined by the managerial corporation. Were corporations managerial because it was the managerial century, or did the managerial century? <laughs> turn out that way because of corporations what came first i think i think the corporations the corporations came came first so the the, the thesis that i'm playing with is not it's not a new idea uh, it's a you know a long standing idea that uh, at the beginning of the 20th century the world transformed or certainly the us economy transformed 
from a world uh, of small enterprises where the people who own them also manage them. So at the beginning of the 20th century, we get something called the great merger wave, uh, where lots of small businesses come together into large um, enterprises. And now all of a sudden, the businesses are being run by people who are professional managers and they're staffed by employees, and, and neither of those is necessarily um, an owner. At least this is the, you know, the longstanding thesis. And the, you know, the narrative that went along with that is, well, this happened because, uh, in, you know, we now had scientific management. We had the ability to use natural sciences to predict the future and manage control and this is more efficient than using markets. The great business historian Alfred Chandler called it a movement from the invisible hand to the visible hand of management. And uh, kind of the central thesis of, of this book, I mean, it is also in its way um, an economic history of the 20th century, but it's an economic history with a, a, a number of theses and, and themes running through it. And the central, the central thesis is that... Um, this is not the right way to look at it, that the managerial corporation rose early in the century uh, as a, because markets and market supporting institutions couldn't deal with the rapid transformations in industry that were being brought about by the railroad and the telegraph and the, and the use of coal and the shifting economic geography of the country. And the way to think about businesses, or think about corporations, I should say, is that they are uh, repositories of institutions. And so they are, they are um, institutional structures in which, uh, or institutional structures that can often substitute for more visible institutions in the market. And so my argument is that this arose, that the large managerial corporation, and therefore in many ways, as you suggest, the managerial century arose not because Managerial, managerialism was inherently more efficient than uh, anything else, uh, but because the alternatives weren't very good. Because if you think about the 20th century, uh, it was the middle of the century was a, was a, all disasters, right? You have the Great Depression, you have World War II, and in all of these cases, you've got 30 years or so where markets and market supporting institutions aren't working very well. So I argue that that's an important reason why large corporations thrive, because they were um, an institutional container that was more resilient to these large forces than the the larger than the external and more visible. So, so, Richard, let, you know the the managerial companies that come to mind for me anyway are car companies like Ford and. General Electric or General Motors, and of course General Electric, that were the dominant yes. century companies. Yes, what DuPont. existed before yes. them? What were they replacing? Was it the family firm? This was obviously, I mean, all, all the managerial century was also the urban century, the industrial century, the shift cool. from the countryside cool. to the city. Cool. What economic organization defined the nineteenth century? Well, um, much smaller enterprise. And the reason, and I think the, the right way to think about it is to think about economic geography. In a world where transportation and transaction costs are high, you want to make stuff near where the people are, right? Because if it's really expensive to move stuff, especially big things like right. 
you know, obviously they didn't have cars, although they had carriages, right? And in fact, Billy Durant, who founded General Motors, started out as a maker of carriages in the 19th century. So if you were making things like carriages and heavy things, um, you can't ship them very easily until you have railroads and, um, and so on, the Western rivers. Um, and that really changes the economic geography. So you had a, sm a much smaller system, right, where people were typically much more likely to be owner-managers. And that doesn't really change. For, I mean, you had things like plantations and, and military arsenals and things that were proto-corporations, but that was not a big part um, that was not a big part of the economy. And it's not really to get railroads uh, that you see the big change because railroads are very capital intensive. They're very high technology for the day and they, um, they, they go distances. And so it's very hard to manage them, right? Uh, to manage them yourself if you own a railroad. And so you have to hire people to manage them for you. And, and, and I think that part of the story is absolutely correct. That was, The railroads were the seedbed of managerialism, uh, and a lot of the techniques of managerialism arise out of the railroads. So, so Richard, and I'm, I'm probably stating the obvious to you, but um, we can broaden this. Uh, the, these corporations, these managerial corporations, were definitionally physical. They existed in railway junction cities, I guess, like Chicago, New York. Uh, yeah. They're very different from the, the virtual companies, the nowhere office culture of the 21st century. Yes, yes and no, but I mean, yes, but, but think about think about companies like Sears, which are sort of classic 19, late 19th, early 20th century companies, Sears, Roebuck, Montgomery Ward, those were Amazon. Right. Um, and, and so what they were, they had this, they had what we would now call fulfillment centers. They had a giant fulfillment center in Chicago and you would write in from the countryside because people mostly still lived in the countryside and you would write to them and they would send you whatever you wanted. So it was like slow moving um, Amazon. So, so yes, it was mostly physical, but um, there were certainly even, even then presentiments of the kind of world we have now. So let's define what exactly does managerialism mean? Was it a sort of a, a Weberian rationality when it comes to the workplace? Uh, well, Marx Egger does, does uh, uh, come in here in the sense that, that Alfred Chandler was, was influenced by, uh, by Weber. Um, the, what Chandler, this guy Alfred Chandler invented was sort of the, the field of business history because he, um, in part inspired by Max Weber, uh, wanted to think about not the evolution of specific companies. A lot of people had been writing about what happened in Company X, but he wanted to think about the evolution of organizational forms, right, um, which is sort of a Max uh, Weber idea, and infused it, and as was common in the early 20th century, this was the progressive era, people were very optimistic about science and control of industry, and framed this as a, a you know, as a, as a new era, if you will, because, because uh, we now had these scientific techniques of management, we could manage these large companies more efficiently than they could be managed through um, more visible arrangements in a, in a market. That was, that was sort of what managerialism. Uh, how much was rooted in the, I guess, the, the cult of work, of Taylorism, 
Well, that comes out. That comes out of. That. I mean, that's a that's a part of it. It's not the you know. I think that part of it is 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 overdone. But it is yes. They saw they saw that people like Taylor uh, were coming up with with techniques for managing these large companies, and then they generalized that and said, well, then this is something we can pull out of a hat anytime we need it. We're going to run everything that went back. Why don't we run the government that way? So you get the origin of the. Uh, you know, expert um, um, expert government that that became yeah. very popular in the early 20th century. It's the ideology of, of technocracy. One person who always comes up in these conversations is Ronald <laughs> Rose and his yeah. theory of the nature of the firm. How does he fit in? And were they, or did they think they were observing some eternal truth, or did they understand that that the, the, the the period of capitalism, organizational capitalism, they was they were living through was a reflection of other forces in history. Um, well, I think Coase is very important in my story. Uh, he's very important because um, I use him as kind of the jumping-off point from from the observation that there's a choice between firms and markets. That that is. Um, it's not one or the, it's not that there's kind of a historical transformation from one to the other, but there's uh, that people are always making the choice between whether to do things inside of a firm or to do things through market transactions. And that was Coase's big idea. And that we need to think about the costs of doing that, which is, so I sort of take that perspective. Uh, from Coase's point of view, though, I mean, as Coase, uh, as an individual thinker, he was not very much grounded in the big history stuff. In fact, his theory that, you know, his, his paper from 1937 that won him the Nobel Prize eventually uh, really applies to like an owner-managed firm, right? So, so it was not, about, I mean, he did not theorize about, uh, about big historical issues. He thought more about, uh, you know, kind of fundamental theoretical ideas. Other people I talk about, like this guy Chandler and Joseph Schumpeter, are uh, theorists of the corporation who did think much more in terms of, of uh, you know, historical uh, historical movements and historical transitions. These corporations, uh, Richard, that you described, the dominant corporations of the 20th century, um, they were very male, weren't they? I and mean, they're very conformist. It seems as if they were in some way summarized culturally by <laughs> movies and books like The Man in the right. Flannel Suit. How much yes, of that yes, is true yes. and how much of it is uh, the, the, a view back, particularly from the 1960s? Uh, well, I think it, I think it was it was true that uh, you know just empirically that, that males were running the, were running things and had the jobs and there weren't that many there weren't that many women involved. Uh, whether they were corporate men in the sense that they were kind of uh, corporate robots, uh, you know, madmen kind of thing, I think is much more con is much more contestable. I do have I do spend some time some of the more fun parts of the book, but I do talk about some of those cultural things uh, a little bit and, and I'm kind of skeptical of, uh, um, you know, the cultural portrayal of of corporate uh, of, of corporate life and the criticism of the cultural critics got it right, that these firms weren't quite as conformist or as gray as they yes, said. I think that's I think that's right. They weren't. And 
Um, and in fact, now there's a there's a kind of nostalgia now for the for the for the gray flannel suit, right? So so I mean, in the in the sixty in the fifties and sixties, uh, the cultural critics are saying how terrible this. Everybody was a conformist. People, you know, aren't you know out on their own taking chances. They're all you know following orders. And now, of course, we have this great nostalgia for this. Why why aren't we going back to an era where the companies are taking care of their workers and everybody's you know a robot and and so on? Um, so I mean, cultural criticism has its um, how, how much. Um... Hmm? How much moral consciousness was um, existed in these in these corporations? You mentioned the technocratic ideal, I guess, in American political history, probably best represented by the Eisenhower years of the fifties. Eisenhower mm -hmm. didn't naturally fit into either parties and was, I guess, himself almost part of the military-industrial managerial elite. Well, although a skeptic of it, yes. Yeah, and he invented the term, of course, the military-industrial complex. Right. But you, you talked about this nostalgia for an organized uh, workplace and work day amongst some people, not everyone. Yes. When you look back, did these companies sometimes make decisions according to how they wanted the world to be rather than purely for profit? Not, not very much. Um, I, you know, I think it is it is true that especially after the war for a little while, because uh, you know the competitor countries had been destroyed in the war, uh, and the U.S. had been you know thoroughly geared up to manufacture during the war, that there was a lot of success and a lot of profit and a lot of free cash flow going around um, after the war and people could get away with things. Uh, but what they were getting away with was not generally kind of rethinking, um, you know, um, the social role of the corporation. They were thinking things like, well, I've got this free cash flow. I'm going to use some of it to buy off labor. Uh, because labor is giving me problems, I'm going to use some of it to uh, create an inefficient organizational structure to protect myself against the antitrust authorities. Because if I have a nice, clean um, uh, or firm that's organi organized in, an, in a nice, efficient, modular way, then the government's going to come along and take me apart. And so I'm going to do all kinds of things that, um, you know, that aren't, in some sense, long-term sense, strictly maximizing uh, profit, but, but you can they, only get away with that. You yeah. can only get away with that if you're making money. Right? Are there corporations that stand out that made important decisions? I mean, some of them, I guess, associated with the military-industrial complex. There were, of course, the the movie Oppenheimer will be coming out uh, mm. later this summer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oppenheimer took a moral stand against the development of the hydrogen bomb. Were there some companies who said we're not going to manufacture nuclear weapons, for example? Well, there were. Um, um, a lot of uh, the uh, captains of industry before World War II, uh, and they got a lot of, of heat for this, were were non-interventionists. Um, uh, Billy Durant of, uh, of General Motors was a pacifist, and Henry Ford was famously a pacifist and an anti-interventionist, and he refused to make any... Uh, he refused to make any war products um, at all, at least in his American plants, his, his European plants did. But in his American plants, he refused to make any war products at all 
uh, until the, um, for the British and the French especially, until the United States was officially in the war. So they, t they did take moral stances of that, uh, of that sort. Uh, so many people did, and, they, and you know, history, in fact, does not look favorably on them for, because isolation. Certainly, well, certainly Ford, given his attitude right. towards Jews. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Right, right, right. He was on, on the other side of it, he was, he was actually the largest employer of blacks in, uh, right. in Detroit um, and employed 80% of the black workforce, was, worked for Ford. Yeah, you, you've jumped out to the next question, Richard, which is um, the relations with the working class, which is not a term that's often used mm -hmm. in America, but there was a working class, especially in industrial, industrial right. capitalism. Uh, you mentioned Schumpeter, of course, who had much to say on this, a post-Marxist theorist. Uh, what, how did managerialism, if one can generalize in the 20th century corporation, how did it think of its workers, particularly its laboring workers, the people who worked on the shop floors? Um, I mean, that's that's something that, of course, changed over the over the course of the century. Uh, but they they thought of workers, um, you know, I think especially after uh, after World War Two, uh, as um, uh, as you know, as as a little bit more cogs in the machine. And I think part of that has to do with unionism, right? That it wasn't just the companies that were um, that were defining jobs, after, especially after World War II. The unions had become very powerful, and they were defining uh, job classifications in, in many cases in, in intricate detail. There would be like 100 different job classifications, and nobody was allowed to do a different job. And so the jobs became very finely cut up, um, and so people would do small, repetitive things. Um, and that didn't really change until the you know, the, the Japanese revolution, if you will, when, when people said... Well, that's interesting. Thinking aloud, you compared Sears, Roebuck, and Amazon. Mm -hmm. Is the anti-unionism at Amazon, is it any more pronounced than it would have been at Sears, Roebuck? Um, certainly not it, as it would have been in, at Ford in places, in places like that. They were very... Uh, I mean, it varied. For, Henry Ford was much more anti-union than, say, than General Motors... And Chrysler, because the, the General Motors was was much more managerial, right? I mean, Ford was really not managerial in the sense that it was sort of pre-managerial because Ford yeah. behaved as if it was a family company, right? It was a family company, and he he ran it with you know he ran it with an iron hand. He was involved in the daily operations, whereas General Motors was was owned by you know by the by the DuPont family and a few stockholders. And it had a, you know, powerful figure in Alfred Sloan, who was a significant owner, but he was not, he was not uh, the kind of owner that Ford was. And, and he was, you know, the, the figure who stands out in a lot of uh, histories is uh, Sloan as the, as the central figure of managerialism, because he was the, the professional manager par excellence, right? But and it's but, funny because you mentioned General Motors. I'm reading a history of the 1950s, the Halberstam. Is, I, I read that, yes, when I was reading this book. It, it's a good book. And he yeah. points to the poor, I, I guess you could describe it as the poor management of General Motors, their obsession with form as opposed to function and their destruction in the long run of the American car industry because they didn't focus on 
performance or size. Um, so, yeah, the enough, uh, uh, let, let me just finish the question, Richard. Um, for all the managerial nature of these corporations, it didn't necessarily lend itself to sort of an economic rationality, did it? They were just as short-sighted sometimes as, as, as any other organization. Well, absolutely. And I think in some ways that's that's part of my thesis is that is that central planning doesn't work any better inside of a corporation than it does inside of an economy. Uh, sometimes you have to do it if if the the other alternatives aren't good. But it was not. I mean, that's partly what I'm trying to say here is that managerialism was not error free scientific planning. Uh, that was all completely overblown. They made a lot of mistakes. Uh, they made a lot of mistakes for a lot of historically contingent uh, reasons. And they, they set themselves up very badly for when the Japanese showed up back. So yes. So especially when it comes to, obviously, electronics, and then uh, yes, the, the movie that comes to mind in terms of the most uh, entertaining I guess, <laughs> critique of managerialism is the 67 movie, The Graduate. You remember when uh, oh, yes. uh, Benjamin yes. played, uh, 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 Benjamin uh, talks about uh, going into, um, going into plastics. What happened in the sixties, Richard? Was it as giant a cultural re rebellion against American corporate capitalism as, as people think these days? Um, it was something. Uh, I don't know that it was all directed against corporate capitalism. I mean, the way I tell the story, uh, sort of as an economic historian, is a lot of it had to do with the baby boom. And you sort of have coming of age, uh, coming of age at exactly that time, people like me, my age, um, who, were, who were young and getting uh, and, and in very large numbers and very highly educated and so you had a, you had kind of a natural ferment the other thing that was going on of course was the was the vietnam war and in my story that's terribly important because the the inflation that was generated to help pay for the vietnam war um upset the the monetary regime the so-called Bretton woods system uh and that's what really began the the sort of the era of globalization we got it destroyed this much more controlled international financial regime and allowed a much more uh, much more internationally competitive regime that we've come to think of as uh, as globalism uh, and that uh, globalization and that and that's what put a lot of the pressure on the um, on the on the corporations who now had to who now had to uh, compete right but I mean you know the graduate is sort of in the right in the sense that's a toss-off that's kind of a gray flannel suit toss-off right are you going to be right. Are you going to be a, a realized individual, or are you going to be a company? Are you going to be a company man? And the company that, or the individual, we think of in terms of rebellion as well, Steve Jobs, who and Steve Wozniak, yeah. of course, founded Apple. Apple today is a multi-trillion-dollar company, strictly regimented. Mm -hmm. I mean, it works within <laughs> the global system, like Google and Microsoft and Amazon, yeah. but. How how is Apple in the 2020s or Amazon? How are they different from the big managerial companies of the 20th century? They're enormously powerful, enormously bureaucratic and hierarchical. What's the difference? Um, oh, I think there is more. There, for one thing, they're more. Uh, they tend to be 
more, and this is the way I try to I try to explain it. But I think the the companies today are less like General Motors than they are like the railroads of the 19th century. So I think what what we're experiencing now is a lot like what we saw at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century was this new uh, system of communication, right? So I you know I talked about Sears and uh, you know these stories about. Uh, a&P, right, the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, which was a kind of a pre precursor of Walmart in, in very, very uh, many ways, right? Um, and so we, we're seeing a lot of these things, again, an, a change in economic geography uh, brought about by technology. It was coal in the railroads in the 19th century, and now it's, you know, high-speed uh, fiber optic cables and, and you know, powerful computers that are uh, that are changing the economic geography. And so places like, um, you know, Amazon and, you know, Amazon is Sears, but, you know, uh, places like a Apple and Microsoft are maybe more like the Pennsylvania Railroad in some way. Or the telephone company. So yeah. I guess what you're saying, ironically, is that history is repeating itself, that we we went from the analog network companies to managerial companies and now we're on to the the digital networking corporate stage yeah i think that i think i think that's probably fair yeah so might history repeat itself again might we return <laughs> to a, a new kind of managerialism do you think um i'm not sure i mean i'm i mean what the the central part of the of the century was all about physical mass production. So you mentioned physicality before, and that was certainly true. Um, and now I think if, if there's certainly going to be, and, and there is, I think people don't understand that, that there's considerable manufacturing in, in the U.S., much more than people imagine. It's just not done with people anymore. Um, and so the, I doubt that there's going to be, a, a, you know, a regime where, um, where we return to this physical kinds of stuff. I wonder, though, we've, we've done a number of shows, Richard, on the political crisis, the lack of consensus, the death mm -hmm. of truth. Yeah, I try, to talk about and, um, I try to talk about that. In the, yeah, the and um, often business writers, people who teach in the business schools, come on the show, and they don't always say it explicitly, but ultimately when you analyze what they're saying, they're suggesting that the best organizations left are the corporation and they need to step up their game morally and otherwise and they need to challenge or even replace political or bureaucratic organizations is that something that you've come across in your work and research oh, well i've i've seen it and 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 i mean there is kind of a re, you know uh, a reaction to the high globalization stuff of a few years ago where everything was outsourced and and you never made anything yourself and and the end of management and in fact a couple of friends of mine just wrote a book about the you know uh, the importance of, ma of managers and how managers are still important today even in a world that's that um that's that decentralized i mean i'm sure there i know also know people in, in the business school world who uh, you know, who have written these kinds of uh, books. I mean, Rebecca Henderson has written something. Yeah, Rebecca's been on the show. And we also see the privatization of the ideology of managerialism. We even had a, a woman on the show who talked about uh, running the family like a corporation. So <laughs> we, have, uh, we have managerialism uh, invading the home. 
I mean, I mean, I, that's uh, at one level that's uh, that's obviously uh, that's obviously silly. But I, and in some sense, there's something a little bit deep about that in the sense that um, families are small corporations, right? We don't. We, you know, we don't charge, we don't say to our kids, I'm going to pay you 15 cents a dish for doing the dishes, right? What we, what we say is, uh, you know, I'm the father and now it's your turn to do the dishes, just like I'm the boss and it's your turn to, you know, work on the production line. Uh, and so it's a very non-market relationship in a family, just as it's in some sense a non-market relationship in a firm. And those are institutional substitutes, right? We can do things through markets or we can do things through firms or, or families with sent, with some kind of central direction. That, that's kind of coast, right? Um, and I, what I think is wrong is not so much running the, the family like a, like a business, I suppose, if you take that in a gentle way, but, but sort of the opposite, trying to run it like a market, right? I mean, um, I think there's, there's a kind of a dual confusion that you see, um, Markets are made for the big world, right? We're, we're, we don't know other people. We're, we don't have a lot. It's very costly to get information about other people. So the best way to run a big world is through markets rather than central planning, because central planning requires just gobs of knowledge that we can't possibly manage, even with quantum computers. Um, so that's a mistake, Put, putting markets where you're putting central planning where you should have markets. But I think the other side of that is it's equally a mistake to want to use markets where you probably should use some other kinds of institutional structures, if you see what I'm saying. So finally, uh, finally, um, uh, Richard, um, if you've got any kids, but if you had a kid like Dustin Hoffman, <laughs> you, uh, would you suggest they go and work for the corporation? Should they do a startup? I mean, we live in an age of the cult of the, the startup. Um, is that... Yeah. What what wisdom would we get from reading your book about the 20th century corporation in terms of what we should be encouraging our kids to do or what we ourselves should be doing? I'm not at ha I'm not sure that it has <laughs> uh, that it has lessons at that uh, at that personal uh, at that at, at that personal uh, level. Um, uh, one of my sons in the sort of in the movie script writing business and he's talked about doing a startup but of course he's uh, he's not a company man <laughs> and he also talks about a work life balance and, f and finally uh, richard ai <laughs> can ai change everything lots of people talking about ai these days as the thing that will change the very nature of work and life can um, we have uh, large corporations run by ai no i mean i'm a, i'm a, an ai skeptic um, I, I think it's just a continuation of, of what we've been seeing all along, which is mechanization, right? So, so that it, I talk about this at the end of the book, and, and a lot of smart people like David Autor have, have written about this, that um, when you can, uh, when there are tasks that are routine, and you can re-engineer tasks to make them routine, which is sort of what Henry Ford did, but it's also what Amazon did with Alexa, right? Uh, to re-engineer tasks so that they could be done by machines and machines are gonna crowd into those kinds of tasks, but humans are still gonna have other things to do and they're gonna crowd into the kinds of tasks that use human cognition, right? So person-to-person -person skills and, uh, and those, kinds of, uh, those kinds of tasks. And so I think we're gonna see a lot more of that. And I don't think 
the, I think it's again a confusion to think that the machines are going to become like people in some sense and take over the jobs. People are just going to be crowded into the more people-like jobs, and the computers are going to do the more computer-like jobs. 